Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. On this episode, I talk to Megan McArdle, who's a Washington Post opinion columnist. We talk about the attack on Salman Rushdie in mid-August 2022, about free speech and contemporary public discourse, and about civil discourse and debate both in newspapers and online. Thank you very much for making the time to talk to us. Welcome to the Keeping It Civil podcast. I'd like to start by talking to you about free speech and civil discourse, which is one of the major themes of this podcast, Keeping It Civil. And I'd like to ask you about the attack on Salman Rushdie last week. Salman Rushdie, obviously a a very prominent Indian-British author who, since the publication of his book, Satanic Verses, all the way back in 1988, has been a public figure. He's been subject to various threats. His book was regarded as blasphemous against the Prophet Muhammad. There were death threats, and last week he was stabbed, very seriously injured. He appears to be in a stable condition now, but this has sparked something of a discussion or a debate about free speech and civil discourse or speech as violence, and I just wanted to get your reactions to the events of last week and this attack on on Rushdie. I have a lot of thoughts on that because coincidentally at the Chautauqua Institute where he was talking, I was actually invited to open the week. So he spoke at 1045 on Friday. I spoke at 1045 on Monday. And so this ended up being this oddly uh, visceral experience for me because I'd been standing in the same place where he was sitting when he was attacked. And to have been in this place that's, you know, look, Chautauqua is a pretty liberal place. I am more on the libertarian conservative spectrum. And to see that kind of marred was, I think, a really visceral and physical expression of what these attempts to suppress free speech does. This is the most extreme example I can think of, is someone coming into this place that is all about people talking to each other and sharing ideas, and then attempting to strike down this author for the the sin of saying things that he didn't like. I thought it was shocking. And I thought it was also, looking back, I think it showed us a little bit of a shift that has taken place in the last 30 years. When that fatwa was issued years and years ago, we thought of threats to free speech as coming primarily from the right. It was about religious censorship. It was the Scopes Monkey trial. It was the the Red Scare of the 1950s. At that time, one of the things that you saw, in my opinion, disgracefully, was people who kind of both sides this question, who said, well, sure, they've put a death threat on an author for publishing a novel they don't like, but you have to to consider their point of view and that this is really offensive. And that was, I think, the beginning of the left, which had historically thought, well, free speech is good for us and it's good for progress, starting to reconsider and starting to say, well, Well, is free speech really okay if it makes marginalized people feel bad? Is free speech really okay if it attacks the wrong people? Ifs and ifs and ifs to the point where you don't have a lot of free speech left because the thing about free speech is that it's always been about unpopular speech. It's always been about speech that made a lot of people uncomfortable. Now I think you're really seeing, we've entered an era 
where the left is at least equally as avid to suppress ideas that it does not like as the right. And especially where you have seen this get a toehold in worlds like publishing, I have real questions about whether the Satanic Verses could be published today. One thing that strikes me about the timing of the Satanic Verses controversy and this point that you made about it leading to a sort of a sea change or a change in the discussion about free speech is that it obviously also coincides with the end of the Cold War. And of course, under communist regimes in Eastern Europe or in the Soviet Union, and of course there were dissident intellectuals and authors that made this really palpably clear because they weren't able to be published and to speak freely in those countries. But in those areas under these communist regimes, there was nothing like free speech. So perhaps do you think that the collapse of those regimes and the collapse of communism as a kind of an alternative other system of political organization that is explicitly anti-free speech maybe led to less introspection or less awareness in Western countries about the importance of free speech? There were people on the left who did defend Soviet censorship. So I should maybe not have spoken quite as broadly as I did in saying, well, the left always thought of itself as the free speech. I think the less flattering maybe, but also probably more accurate thing is just that the left got more power in institutions that had the ability to censor. That as the left gains hegemony over publishing, as it gains hegemony over broadcast, as it gains hegemony over universities, and as there is less and less pushback, for example, from the fact that broadcasters had to maintain a mass market. You're trying to get the biggest audience possible, which means you don't want to offend people too much, which means that they were limited in how far leftward they could list, even if the staff themselves were were fairly left. But there were, in fact, more conservatives in all of these places. They were still predominantly liberal, but it was more like a third two-thirds or 60-40. And now it's more like 199, <laughs> 3.97. And when you have that much power... It just seems natural that well, when everyone agrees with me, we all know the other ideas are bad anyway. So why would we give them a hearing, right? It's just once you are assured of being the person who gets to wield the censor's pen, then unfortunately censorship starts to sound a lot more reasonable. So in some ways you could argue that this attack on Rushdie is a hangover from a very, very historically distant event, right? The publication of this book back in the in the late 80s. But it sounds to me like you don't agree with that at all. You think that in some ways it's a reflection of contemporary trends, a new era of political intolerance. But do you think that it sort of just provokes us to think about free speech today? Or do you think there's some sort of a link between the treatment of Rushdie now and the treatment of Rushdie, say, 10 years ago, in a different climate of political discussion and debate and those sorts of things. Yeah, I wouldn't say that that the fault lies with modern people, right? The fault lies with the Ayatollah who put the fatwa on on Rushdie. And then I should say, actually, oddly, as as I understand it, and I am by no means a, a Muslim scholar, so forgive me if I get this wrong, but my understanding is there's actually no way to lift a fatwa posthumously. It could only be lifted by the person who issued it. And then he died shortly thereafter. So you you did end up in this strange situation where there was this death warrant out and no one could take it back. So I, I think that the responsibility lies there. The responsibility lies with the fan of the Ayatollah who decided to try to kill Rushdie. 
But what I do think it does is show us in our reactions to it, problems with our own era. I mean, one of them is radicalized young men that, but you know, that we've known that was a problem for a while. And that is that, you know, a lot of the free speech groups were kind of slow and awkward to come out with condemnations of this. And when they did, they were less a full-throated, like, Rushdie has a right to speak. And we should point out, Rushdie is himself born to a Muslim family. So this is not some thing of, like, anti-Muslim bigotry coming from someone else. This is someone critiquing his own culture. Like the ACLU, for example, I believe said no one should be threatened on account of their speech and so forth. But how about free speech is good? Not stabbing people is bad. Yes, stabbing people is bad. But free speech is good. And that used to be something that the ACLU stood for. And they've become very uncomfortable with that message and have been really revisiting whether they're going to they're actually going to stand for First Amendment rights in all cases or whether when marginalized groups might be impacted, they're going to pull back and not defend those so that you've now got another group. The foundation, what had been for the, the foundation, Individual Rights and Education, has now expanded to become the foundation for individual rights and expression in order to take up kind of the space that the ACLU has abandoned. And you saw this with other left-wing groups. You saw this with PEN America, which is the one of the premier free speech groups, finding it difficult to, you, you, you've seen this, now PEN America this time did come out full-throated, right? This is wrong. But I think that the ambivalence that the left has shown towards this has revealed to me as a kind of a free speech absolutist, a distressing pullback from the values that I think are just necessary to a liberal society, which is, yes, the existence of a diverse society means that indeed many people are often going to be offended by the opinions of other people, including the opinions of other people about them and their most sacred beliefs. Because otherwise, if you're picking and choosing, you don't have a principle. I think that the Rushdie case in some ways is a really nice case for discussing this kind of abstract issue in some ways because this idea that speech that's offensive can cause real harm is really nicely illustrated by Rushdie's book because there were indeed riots following the publication of that book in the late 1980s that in the developing world, I believe, in in India, there were riots protesting the publication of the book that led to deaths, you know, not just a couple, but I believe at least a dozen deaths, even just in, in one or two events. So in this case, you can almost sort of draw a direct causal link from speech, in this case, the publication of a book, to real physical harm and violence. But do you think, how do we deal with that trade-off? Is there a case for restricting some forms of speech that are particularly offensive because they might either A, cause some sort of a backlash, some sort of an event that leads to violence, or could we even say that the words themselves are, are a form of violence, right? This argument that words can be violent, words can cause cause harm. We do restrict some kinds of speech. You are not, for example, allowed to tell grotesque lies about people. If you do, they can sue you and we'll give them money. You're not allowed to perjure yourself when you're under oath. That said, I think there are good reasons that we keep those restrictions very limited and that we have tended always towards 
allowing more speech over the last, you know, 70, 80 years than less. And the reason is, look, I think in a way we have to understand where free speech comes from, where these ideals of the Enlightenment come from. And they are born out of Europe's religious wars, which were incredibly devastating, right? Economically devastating, huge numbers of people died, not just in the fighting, but in the accompanied famines and, and you know, the looting of crops in order to feed armies. And people just got to the point where they realized, A, they weren't going to win. But here's the other thing that when we think about that, we fail to appreciate. We're not taking seriously the things they were fighting over. If you sincerely believe that you are talking about the matter of someone's immortal soul, that's way more important than anything that any group that is arguing against free speech for this or that cause because it's too harmful. That's way more serious than that, right? That's forever. And we said, yes, but you still got to do it with words and not with swords. You still got to do it by persuasion and not by force. I mean, you've been an opinion writer for a long time, Megan, and engaged in these sorts of arguments and debates for a long time. And, you know, I've read some of your pieces and listened to some of your podcasts, and it sounds like you haven't always been treated fairly by people on social media, and there's been a lot of not particularly civil discourse in certain phases of your career. But it sounds like, to me, you still have a real commitment to making these sorts of arguments and trying to bring people, persuade people, bring people over to your side. What are your ground rules for persuasion and debate? Do you have a set of things that you make sure you don't do, things that you make sure you do do? How do you go about writing your most convincing arguments for your pieces? I think a convincing argument always starts with a good faith attempt to see how the other people is thinking, are thinking. Using also correct grammar as a writer, that would be good. <laughs> um, look, there's a, a good maxim that I learned from a creative writing instructor many decades ago now. No one is a villain in their own mind. There's this formulation you see a lot in writing on social media, but also in professional writing. I just can't understand how anyone could think X. And like what that message is supposed to convey is I am a morally superior, enlightened being who is just unable to comprehend the stupidity and or the depravity of the people I'm dealing with. What it actually conveys is that I'm a limited person who lacks imagination and hasn't bothered to do the work. <laughs> I've also heard it said that you should make the best argument that you possibly can for the opposing side. If you want to construct convincing argument yourself, don't start with a weak argument or a straw man argument. Don't go easy on yourself from the opposing side, but make the very best argument that you can for the opposing side. Yes. So I taught an op-ed writing class at Duke for a couple of years. And one, and the, the sinister thing that I did to my students was that I made them give me two topics they really cared about. I get, or, or one topic really that they really cared about. And then I made them write, I made them write three op-eds. One was a technical op-ed. It was, it had to be about something fairly dry and technical because that those are hard to do. And, and I wanted to show them researching, but also communicating on a more minimum wage policy or housing. But then I made them pick a topic they were really passionate about. And the first assignment was to write an op-ed expressing their position. But the last assignment of the class was to write an op-ed for the other side. And <laughs> that's really important. If you can't write the other side's argument well enough to write a decent op-ed about it, you don't understand your own position well enough. You haven't done the really deep thinking about what you believe. 
And look, I, it's not that I never fall prey to this, to be clear. I'm not like yelling at other people from my high moral perch. I'm always fighting this instinct in myself because it's so much easier to shut down and be like, no, I just know that's wrong. Right. And as a professional, you kind of have to do it. Yes. <laughs> there are a couple issues where I'm willing to like, yeah, you know what? Child molesting. I'm not going to explore that. It's just, it's okay. That's just wrong. But very, but we're not really writing op-eds about whether molesting children is okay. On the issues that we're contending, we're contending because there are two sides. I'd like to come back to your previous point about this sort of one-eyed approach of of the left, as you see it, that it, it has since the late 80s, in your opinion, been the left that's lost a commitment to free speech and been less willing to engage in civil discourse. Now, you said you taught at a class at, at Duke, and most people probably know that these days, at least according to published surveys, University students and university faculty tend to be predominantly on the left. Did you present the students there with contentious political topics? And and if so, how did they respond to having to write that paper from the other side? It was a challenge. It's hard for people. I think the, the nexus of it is to understand that often it's not that there's a right answer and a wrong answer. It's that we've made different value judgments. And the example I give often is abortion is that if you talk to people about abortion, it's about 20 to 25% on each side of the extremes. These are the people who are either abortions should always be illegal or it should be legal only in cases of rape and incest or life of the mother. And then on the other side, there are the people who say it should be legal right up to the point where the doctor says it's a boy, right? In between, about 50% of the population is much more muddled than that. But when you talk to the people on those extremes, what is clear is that they think that they're the nice people who care about people. Either they care about women or they care about unborn babies. And then there are the bad people who don't care about people who just are hateful and have these hateful, selfish desires either to control women or to just live their life selfishly without any regard for the unborn life they've snuffed out, right? Actually, the right way to look at it, I think, is that there are two really valuable things that are just in direct conflict. If you don't have an abortion, a human being who will love their life every bit as much as you do, that human being will never take a breath, will never fall in love, will never have the triumph of winning a sports match or the experience of hugging a loved one. You're taking all of that away. That's important. On the other hand, the right of a woman to control her body, very important. Also having women participate in economic life as equal citizens, very important. And those there's conflict there. And people are just kind of at, at some level saying, I, I have to pick one and I pick this one. It's not because they hate the other one or don't think it's important or they want the other one to, you know, they don't want to, people don't support abortion rights because they want to kill children. And people don't oppose abortion rights because they hate women. The majority of the energy in the pro-life movement comes from women. They're doing this because they are considering a profound and difficult question and they came up with a different answer from you. And to understand how they did, you need to actually try to win that argument from their point of view instead of just building up arguments for your own side. What's the logical connection between your opinions on climate change and your opinions on abortion? And yet, if I know one, I can almost certainly predict the other. They cluster because we cluster socially. Given that, it's easy to turn off your brain and not engage. And given that also, though, the cost of changing your mind is really high because it's not just admitting you've been wrong about something, which is hard enough. I think we can all agree. (laughs) 
it's saying to your friends, no, I think you're wrong about this, right? That's really hard. But at the very least, you'll understand what the weaknesses in your own argument are. And that's one of the many reasons that I think we just need to keep talking. Is it as simple as that, though? You, obviously, in your professional life, even among professional opinion writers, must encounter people who don't take the same good faith approach, who don't take the opposing side seriously, don't consider the most compelling arguments from the other side. How do you deal with those sorts of non good faith arguments, right? When you feel you're not being taken seriously or that someone is being dismissive or even just rude or uncivil, how do you deal with that kind of discourse? My own personal experience is that losing your temper doesn't help. (laughs) And neither does like feeling really aggrieved about it. I think often, look, I am not a perfect person, but I think when I step back and I'm out of the initial rush of like, how dare they, which I like everyone else experiences. I'm kind of sad and I'm especially sad when it's someone that I think is talented in other ways. And then I'm like, this is sad. They're wasting their time on nonsense, right? They could be doing smart work and instead they're doing terrible work. So I think that helps because then, you know, I get that nice little rush of superiority. (laughs) No, I, um, I used to lose my temper a lot more. And what I realized is I always came out of those exchanges diminished. And now, like, insulting people is fun. I get it. But as I say, this is another way of making yourself stupider. Because insulting people isn't really addressing the core of their argument. Insulting people isn't really, like, actually tackling the hard questions. It's playing on easy mode for those who video game in your audience. And so, like, as I gotten older, there's a quote that has really stuck with me from a rabbi who said, when I was young, I admired people who were clever. And now that I'm old, I admire people who are kind. And it is so true. Because being clever is easy and being kind is hard being kind takes work every day it's not natural to anyone what world do you want to live in a world where we're just all constantly dunking on each other or a world that's where we're doing stuff and making stuff better and coming up with ways to collaborate and create and improve things like that second world sounds better to me and i think maybe when i was an obnoxious 20 year old maybe it didn't but You know, dunking is fun when you're the one doing the dunking, but it's really not fun when you're the one getting dunked on. I'd like to return to your obnoxious 20-year-old self for a second. You were there in 2001 in the early days of the internet. Was it really the Wild West? Was it really this kind of free discourse where people would say pretty much whatever they wanted and there were no consequences? Well, there were some consequences. I am still paying for uh, some particularly dumb remarks I made very early in in the time. When I like when I thought of it as more like being out at a bar with your friends, where you will say things that are obviously not meant seriously. I mean, like something like 2016, I found myself at a bar with some people I didn't know and I was joking. I'd just driven on the Autobahn for the first time in a BMW, which I'd been able to rent weirdly cheaply. And so I got to drive a BMW on the Autobahn and I was telling the story and someone asked me if I'd gone in the left lane and how fast I'd gone. And I said, people who drive in the, in the left lane at the speed limit should be shot. <laughs> Many BMWs and drivers in Germany would agree with that, I think. <laughs> Possibly. I realized, and then someone I was sitting with said, Megan McArdle, may I introduce you to the president of Deutsche Bank? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, and it turned out he thought it was funny and it was fine. Yeah, he did. But, he did. He drives, you know, a, he drives this a BMW the, too. <laughs> I'm sure. But this is what I, is that like 
things that are contextually fine, I would not think twice about making a remark like that to my friends who would know that I can't even kill houseflies. To strangers, it's iffy. And then when you write it down and it gets stripped of context because people don't know you at all and are going to assume the worst, it gets worse and worse, right? And so there was that Wild West aspect that I think was bad, where people would treat it as it as if it weren't a written medium and it is a written medium and you do have to think about posterity in some level but there were great things about it too is yes people would write like ten thousand words explaining how nuclear power plants worked and then the next post would be about pie making and then the next post would be about politics and that was amazing that kind of just the polymathism of it it was just a wonderful free-flowing endless conversation like the best cocktail party you've ever been to Well, I should say, if you're a certain kind of nerd anyway, who really loves cocktail parties where everyone's explaining how nuclear power plants work at great length. And that is gone. That ended as we were forced to seek broader audiences, really. And some of it moved to social media, but some of it just died in a way that makes me really sad. One of your most recent opinion pieces was about a small scandal regarding a restaurant chain changing their menu or something. And you made the argument that even if 10,000 people on Twitter hate what you've done or said, don't think of them as being in your living room or on your street or even on your college campus, but think of them being in a football stadium somewhere in the middle of Texas. Would you care if... 10,000 people in a football stadium in the middle of Texas were booing at you and you'd never been to that town and were never going to go? And I think the obvious answer is no. So I think that in that piece, you're pointing out that A, there's a lot of, you know, dunking go on of people on social media, but B, you think that people shouldn't care that much about it, right? They should just have a a thicker skin and um, be themselves. That's kind of the right message you draw to draw from that piece. I think social media and particularly Twitter, but all of social media, it hacks like our evolutionary instincts in an unhealthy way. And so look, if you were in a place and 10,000 people suddenly started screaming at you, you would think, wow, that's a lot of people. They're very angry. I'm in danger. And we forget two things is first of all, you know, we're talking about at the very least the entire population of the United States. And then there's a big global population too. And out of that 10,000 people is nothing. And that's why I invented the Texas high school football stadium example right, is a, there are a lot of Texas high school football stadiums that contain more than 10,000, that will contain more than 10,000 fans. And you just wouldn't, you know, companies who will freak out at a relatively small social media mob and like fire someone or change their policy. Can you imagine that company saying, you know, the Katie Tigers are really mad about this. We've got to know. One high school football team's fans in Texas are not you know, driving Delta Airlines' corporate policy. So I think that's one... Well, I certainly one... Uh, can see that with uh, corporations. I agree. I agree with that. I'm a little bit more skeptical about young people on social media, you know, that might feel a lot of sort of pressure, peer pressure or judgment if they shared something more personal and uh, 10,000 people liked it or didn't like it, right? I think that might be slightly different. Well, yes, but I mean, I think... This is always a hard thing for the young to remember is that even if most people don't like you, you know, and there's some people, they have very strong personalities. Most people don't like them. You don't need everyone to like you. You need enough people to like you. And and if 10,000 people hate you, there might be like 20,000 who loved you and just didn't say something. 
right? Um, which is also a, a really important thing for a columnist to remember is that my negative feedback outruns my positive feedback by like 20 to one, but that doesn't mean that, that 20 times more people hate me. It means that people are more likely to say something mean than something nice. Because like when you're saying something nice, you just don't remember, or you don't get around to it. You're like, oh, I should really say something nice. But when you're really mad, you're like, no, right now, right now I have to tell this person how mad I am. Do you worry about the sort of online world having a chilling influence, particularly on college students in the classroom worrying about saying certain things or being known to believe certain things that spread around on social media, that it might have a chilling influence on on discourse and conversations among young people, especially like at university? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't even worry about it. I think it's a fact, right? I think about the difference between what I experienced in terms of being able to say stuff in class and argue with people and the experience that my students would express, which is this almost Soviet fear of being heard to say anything impolitic. And, you know, the the conversations I will have with non-students where people would say to me, well, of course, I would never say this in public, but and then they would express some perfectly anodyne and reasonable position. It wasn't like, of course, I would never say this in public, but I really think genocide is okay. But I'm not comfortable with abortion in the fifth month. Or I actually think global warming is a big problem. And I should say, you know, I've been hacking on the left quite a bit here. Let us not forget that Donald Trump is trying to turn the entire Republican Party into an army of yes men repeating his insane lies about the election. I think this is a <laughs> problem on, on both sides. Social media makes it easy to impose a kind of orthodoxy, makes it easy to rally to punish people who violate it. And that is a problem. Do you have maybe a few rules of thumb apart from, you know, being thick skinned, keeping the numbers of people, thinking of them in proportion to the, the total number of Twitter users or whatever out there? Do you have any other words of advice for for young people who are on social media, which I'm not on social media, you know, I... I, I'm not on it at all, but I know that probably most of my students are, and, and I wish that I could I could help them to have more fruitful discussions in the classroom and to worry about this stuff less. A few things. I would say one thing is to remember how little effort it takes to join an internet mob and to discount accordingly. Like, at least the people in the Texas high school football stadium have to get up, put some clothes on, drive to the stadium, and sit out in the hot sun. Someone clicking retweet or liking a tweet or typing out a quick reply has made much less effort than that. And you should treat that accordingly. That's how much they cared. Don't think, oh, well, they must care a lot more. And like now, you know, and this was the thing with Cracker Barrel, which was the, you know, the restaurant that people were threatening to boycott. First of all, it turned out there weren't 7,000 people threatening to boycott, as some of the news reports had implied. It was like a handful of people, and most of the people were making fun of the people who threatened to boycott the restaurant huh. or thanking Cracker Barrel for offering exciting new vegetarian options, which is what had touched off this stupid yes, controversy. a vegetarian breakfast sausage. But also, like people who threaten to boycott aren't necessarily going to do it. You know, I'm not saying that these things don't have real world impacts. They do. And the way that students use these things against each other is really disturbing. But just remember when it's all of these strangers who are screaming at you. And I had to, you know, I wrote this in a column recently and then I had to take my own advice because I had in an ill-advised fashion, I'd written something about abortion. I'd made a reasonable reply to someone that sounded completely horrific if you stripped the con it out of the conversation in which it had taken place. People started to pile on, how dare, how could you say this? This is horrific, whatever. And now look, if I could have rewritten the tweet, I would have 
added appropriate caveats to express my full views so that it didn't sound like I was a psycho. But since I couldn't do that, I explained to a bunch of people. And then I thought, at this point, it's been screenshotted, so I can't delete the tweet and make this go away. Replying to them is just making them angrier, right? Because they came into this knowing that they were dealing with this hideous pro-lifer with horrible views. I'm not even pro-life. And like telling them that didn't assuage them. It just made them angry that I was like lying to them or, or sneakily trying to get out of what I'd said. And I thought, you know what I need to do? I just need to get off social media for a couple of days. And in a couple of days, they will have forgotten. And indeed, I got off social media for a couple of days. And in a couple of days, they had completely forgotten. I haven't heard about it in weeks. It's hard to do, especially for students. But I would say this too. Social media shouldn't be your life. Your life should not be happening on your screen. And if you are investing this much in your social media experience, it's because you're not investing enough in real life relationships. The more dependent we are on screens, the easier and easier it is to be cruel to strangers. Megan, we are we have already run out of time. This has been really great conversation. Thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Um, but we are out of time. And I'd just like to conclude with one parting question, which we ask all our guests, which is what is a book or an essay or a podcast or a film or anything really that you would like to recommend to listeners who are interested in this topic of civil discourse and debate or just something you'd like to recommend in general? My favorite writer on this topic is George Orwell, because, you know, he came under a phenomenal, we, we forget this now, we think of him as this unassailable figure. He came under a phenomenal amount of pressure from the left over his rejection of the Soviet Union's role in the Spanish Civil War. He writes over and over about not just, you know, there's a famous quote from him to see what is, you know, in front of your nose is, is the hardest job of a writer, but also to say it. And so I've always, I mean, it's not just him though. It's Václav Havel, Solzhenitsyn, the people who took real risks for their beliefs. And I think about this all the time when I am writing about things where I know I'm going to get pushed back and where I ended up accidentally self-assigning to the Leah Thomas beat. She's the trans pen swimmer who caused quite a bit of controversy by performing extremely well last swim season and winning an NCAA championship. When I started to write about it, I thought, oh, I need more research. And then I thought, no, I don't need more research. I need a spine. Because really what I was thinking was I need more research and maybe that will kind of fend off the attacks that I'm going to get on this. And I thought, no, I have something to say about this. No one else is saying it. This is why I got the perch. I didn't get the perch to say the things that everyone expects me to say and that they won't, they won't get mad at. And so I went out. I'd already done a lot of research. I wrote the column. And here's the interesting thing. I ended up writing three columns on the topic because then Penn Swimmer reached out and it was, I went to Ivy to watch her swim. I, over and over, I heard from people who were against her swimming, which was by far the majority position, not something that I think you would have realized if you'd read media coverage, by the way. You know, the people who were against and who felt afraid to speak out, which was, again, almost everyone. I mean, I had people who wouldn't, I asked someone, how do swim meets work, right? Can you just explain like what the rules are? And they were like, yes, but I can't go on the record. I have kids in swimming and it's, I'm sorry, I just can't do that to them. And then nothing happened. You know, I wrote three columns. I was respectful. You know, I was not anti-trans. I was not pro-trans. I really tried to get into where I thought the nub of the argument was and explore what it was and then say, at the end of the day, I did end up saying, like, I can't come up with a logical justification for a women's meet 
that includes both Leah Thomas and Isaac Hennig, who is a trans man swimmer from Yale, also a very good swimmer, and the cisgender women. I don't think that's a logical grouping, right? And that something has to give there. And I got, you know, there were a few people who were angry about that, but mostly nothing happened. And I think that the thing that, look, people do suffer for their beliefs, but I think one of the things that is disturbing to me is the people who are self-censoring, not out of fear of something like what happened to Solzhenitsyn, not something, not out of fear of what happened to serious Soviet dissidents, but just out of fear that they might get yelled at or that like people they don't even really like that well might think less of them. And I think that that is so corrosive. You have to, you don't have to say everything you believe all the time. I don't go around telling people what I think of them if I don't like them. I let them, yeah. I actually like most people, but you know, you can keep those things to yourself. But on things that are important, if you have something to say and you look out and no one else is saying it and you sincerely believe it, you have to be true to yourself. Because at the end of the day, that's all you have. You have the real relationships that you have with people who you care about and who care about you and who are going to respect your integrity and speaking your mind, even if they deeply disagree. And you have your own integrity and that's all you're going to carry with you through life. The rest of it can be taken away from you, but that cannot be. And so that is the stuff that you really need to prioritize when you're thinking and, and talking, when you're, when you're engaging in, in the political fray, as we all have to from time to time. And George Orwell as a lesson in that. Thank you very much, Megan, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. 